and uh, I didn't go to church a ton in high school. I won't get into details on that, but uh, there was just one time when, when I, I did find myself at church, and uh, we had a friend, my, my best friend Chris and I, we had another friend who, he was really active in the Presbyterian church. He was a year ahead of us in school, and uh, he was getting ready to go off to school. He was going to go to a very prestigious school, and he was going to be studying theology. And uh, his church, to, to honor him uh, and, and, you know, to, to recognize him and appreciate and celebrate the, the field of study that he was going to pursue, they said, hey, the, the week before you leave to go to school, we'd like for you to preach the Sunday night lesson the Sunday night sermon, and, you know, of course, he was thrilled. He was really excited about it. He'd never done anything like that before, and so he invited all of his heathen friends, and so there I was. Uh, my best friend Chris and I were there. We were there with about uh, 13, 14 of our other friends, and uh, we didn't really know what to expect, but we were really excited for our buddy, and we wanted to be there to support him, um, and he did a great job. I'm not going to get into the details of his message because I got my own sermon to preach, but he did a great job. I was really encouraged by it. Um, and towards the end of the service, we prepared to have communion. Now, I didn't go to church regularly, but I knew enough about church to know that, okay, the, the, the guys who serve communion are going to start to go forward. There's going to be um, some, you know, some, some shiny dishes that you know, somebody's going to uncover, and we're going to start to pass them. I'm waiting for that to happen, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't happen, and I, I keep waiting for these communion people to go. I'm like, well, these people need me to give them a cue. They said we we're going to take communion. Guys, go. But eventually, two men walked forward. One of them's holding a loaf of bread, and another one's holding a King Arthur cup. And I'm going, what in the world is going on here? Well, I knew enough about church to know that I had no idea what was going on, so I should probably pay attention. Shortly after the men with the loaf of bread and the King Arthur cup get to the front, people start filing out of the pews and, and inform a line to go down front. They just had two sets of pews, and so there was a row right down the middle, and so there's this row. I said, i got to pay attention to what's going on. So as we get closer, I notice that, okay, here's the procedure. People are taking some of the bread, and they're dipping it into the cup, and then they put it into their mouth. Okay, I, I got it. I'm good. We can, we can make this work. I'm, I'm fine with that. So I get up. I take my piece of bread. I rip it off. I dip it into the juice. I even had enough presence of mind to like cut my hand underneath it so I didn't spill juice or drip juice on the carpet. And I, I put the bread in my mouth, and I was about ready. I was about ready to start congratulating myself for a job well done. I had navigated this difficult situation when it occurred to me my best friend doesn't have any church knowledge at all. I should have walked him through this process. And so I turn around in just enough time to see him rip off the piece of bread, put it in his mouth, and then dip his finger in the juice and lick it. That night, we were two guys that needed Corinthians. Right? We needed Paul's instruction in the book of 1 Corinthians. I was there, and I knew what to do with communion, but I didn't know the significance of communion. And I was with my best friend who didn't even know what to do with communion. So maybe you're here today, and you know what to do. You know that when the little piece of bread comes by, you chase it around the dish until you grab one. 
okay? And then you get the piece of juice or the, the cup of juice and you pray that you don't spill it on your church clothes. And then you take the communion, right? You know what to do, but you maybe don't know what it's about. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're going, holy cow, I'm glad he explained what to do when the King Arthur cup comes out because I might have made the same mistake. Either way, I want to talk about communion today. I want to talk about communion, or maybe you've heard it called the Lord's Supper. I want to talk about what it is. I want to talk about why we do it, why it's so important, and what's happening when we take this communion. So if you would, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start reading in verse 17. If you've got your own Bible, go ahead and open up there now. Or if you don't, I'm going to have all the text up here on the screen for you. And if you're a guest with us today, I want to take a moment and welcome you as well. And just let you know that we have a fill-in-the-blank sermon outline in your bulletin. That's going to help you track with me, take down some notes, get some key concepts. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 17, says this. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be, there must be divisions among you so that you have God's approval, so that you who have God's approval will be recognized. When you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. You're not interested in communion. For some of you, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? I'm certainly not going to praise you for that. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That's why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That's why many of you are weak and sick and some of you have even died. But if we would examine ourselves we would not be judged by God in this, year, in this way. Yet, when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with this world. So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so that you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about that, uh, that other ma- and other matters after I arrive. So, we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper today. We're going to be talking about communion, and I want to give you a little bit of context. In the first century church, the Lord's Supper was actually a meal. They sat down together around tables, and they had a meal. Now, I know that we have a little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but in the first century church, they had a meal. 
And the wealthy people in the community would bring a lot because they understood that there were people that were less fortunate in the community and maybe they wouldn't be able to bring anything at all. And so if you had enough to bring a lot, you'd bring a lot. And if you didn't have enough to bring anything, you didn't bring anything. And you would understand that there would be enough for everyone. So far, so good. The problem is people started to get a little greedy with their food and drink. And so uh, let's say a rich guy in the congregation comes to this meal one evening, and he's bringing ribeyes. He likes ribeyes, and so he brings ten of them. And before anybody else can get any of this delicious meat, he plops those ribeyes down, and he puts five of them onto his own plate and hurries over, sits down, and starts shoveling it all into his face. He didn't want to share with anybody. He wants to make sure that he's got delicious food. And then another person, another member of the church, brings in two bottles of wine. They put one down with the rest of the drinks on the drink table, and they take one to their own table. And here's what happens. Paul says, when you meet together, you're not interested in the Lord's Supper. Some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with anybody else. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. So instead of having this meal where we remember the Lord, these Corinthians are engaging in gluttony and drunkenness. Those things are sinful in their own right. They're especially sinful when they happen during the Lord's Supper. It's a far cry from what Jesus instituted. Here's how Paul describes that. I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. That's what Jesus instituted. The Corinthian church is engaging in gluttony and drunkenness, and they're far from Jesus' heart on this. So as we begin to unpack this idea of communion and why it is so important to us, why it is a holy thing, as John talked about earlier, I want to focus on two phrases. Do this in remembrance of me, and this cup is a new covenant. So we're going to talk about both of those phrases. Do this in remembrance of me, and this cup is a new covenant. First of all, we're going to do this in remembrance of Jesus. The first problem the people in Corinth are having is that it's, uh, it's, it's one that's common to any age. It's common to any age, and it's a really simple one. You can't remember Jesus if you're focused on yourself. You can't remember Jesus if you're focused on yourself. Corinthians are too busy saying, I want to make sure I get that steak and that bottle of wine, and I want to make sure that I don't sit beside that guy because he's weird and he always tries to eat my stuff. And they're missing the point. They're missing the point. It's not about what you eat. It's about why you eat it. It's not about what you eat. It's about why you eat it. The bread was a focal point in the meal. It was eaten to remember Jesus, specifically to remember that Jesus' body was broken. So when we take that little piece of bread, and we pick it up, it's appropriate to think about the 39 times that the whip slashed across Jesus' back. 
It's appropriate to think of the little shards of bone and rock that caught on his back and tore away pieces of his skin as the whip retreated. It's appropriate to think of a railroad spike being nailed through his wrist and his feet. Because that little piece of bread is to remind us that Jesus' body was broken. Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. Communion is about remembering exactly how it was given. Now, a lot of people are going to look at this passage. They're going to look at this passage and they're going to say, this is my body which is given for you. And they say, well, see, this means that Jesus' body is what we are actually picking up. That little piece of bread uh, somehow during this process actually becomes the body of Jesus. The molecules change from bread to Jesus. Uh, There's a theological term for this. It's called transubstantiation. And I can't imagine a circumstance where you'd need to know that unless maybe uh, anybody, you know, getting ready to go on who wants to be a millionaire. I could see that being a question. If you win, tithe tithe on your winnings. um, Let's get back to the sermon. Um, Anyway, many people believe that the communion bread actually becomes the body of Jesus. And they say that because, well, that's what Jesus said. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. And I see their point, but Jesus also said, I'm the light of the world. Jesus also said, I'm the bread of life. I am the door. I am the vine. And we understand that Jesus isn't literally a door or a vine or a lamp, but he was a spiritual version of those things, and they help us to see Jesus better. So if we were to look at my cell phone, uh, the, the background image is a picture of Leah. And uh, if I was having a conversation with somebody who didn't know Leah or myself, and they said, oh, who's that? I'd respond, that's Leah. And they wouldn't think that that was actually my wife. They would understand that it's a picture of her. In the same way, communion isn't actually Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus. I love what Ray Lauren, Roy Lauren says on this. He says, the, the whole supper, it's a representation of the physical sense for a spiritual purpose. The Lord's Supper does not indicate the physical person of Jesus in the bread or the cup, but rather the spiritual presence of Christ. So as we partake of what has been designated as flesh and as his blood, we do so by faith. Thus the Lord's Supper is accomplished by the heart and the mind, not by the teeth and the throat. What's Roy Lauren saying? He's saying it's not about what you eat. It's about why you eat it. It's not about what you eat, it's about why you eat it. And we eat to remember that Jesus' body suffered the cruelty of our life so that we might inherit eternal life. We eat to remember that Jesus' body suffered the cruelty of our life so that we might inherit eternal life. So that's the first phrase. We do this in remembrance of Jesus. Let's talk about the second one. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. And we've got to start with a principle. Uh, here's the principle. In order to appreciate a new thing, we have to understand why it's better than the old thing. Kind of funny that uh, Mr. Pennington, for the second week in a row, has absolutely perfectly summed up my sermon in his Sunday school class. So if you went to Ron's Sunday school class today, uh, you don't need to listen to the rest of this. You can, no, but you should still. That's not an... You, keep listening, okay? 
So in order to appreciate a new thing, we have to understand why it's better than the old thing. It's why Apple spends $2 billion a year on advertising. They've got to convince us that this new phone that they come out with every year is better than the six-month-old phone I have in my pocket. We have to understand why the new thing is better than the old thing. So if this is the beginning of a new covenant, we have to ask, what's the old one? What's the old one? Well, I want to talk about how sin was handled in the old covenant. How sin was handled in the old covenant. Because people sinned in the old covenant just like people sin in the new covenant. But how'd they handle it in the old covenant? Well, first of all, your family would go and they would find a lamb. It was a year-old lamb without blemish or defect the Bible says, and you would take this lamb and you would bring it into your home and it would become a part of your family and you would take care of it. You'd make sure that nothing bad happened to this lamb until the day of atonement. And you would take this lamb to the altar and you and your entire family would lay your hands on this animal. And you would feel the life and the vitality and the squirminess of a young lamb. And then the priest would come by, cut its throat. The blood would drain from the animal, and you would feel life leave this body. First it would squirm and move, and the pain and the discomfort would be evident. But then that would give way to the silence and calm of death as the blood dripped on the altar. Unpleasant unpleasant. It was supposed to be unpleasant. It was supposed to be unpleasant because it was supposed to remind us that sin is unpleasant. More than that, it was horrific. And it was horrific because it was supposed to remind us that sin is horrific. We missed that. We missed that sin is terrible. A lot of us say things like, well, you know, I've sinned, but I've made up for it. I've sinned, but I, I, I made up for it. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I give to charity. I volunteer. I'm on the PTA. And every time there's a school fundraiser, I buy some cookie dough. I really, really don't need cookie dough. I'm a good person. God says those things are fine. I'm, I'm glad you're doing those things. But that doesn't atone for your sin. It doesn't make up for what you've done wrong. Being a good person is what I expected of you. Here's what sin is. It's disregarding God's commands for our desires. When we sin, what we're saying is, God's not in charge. I am. I am. And God takes that seriously. His response is, there's not room for two people. There's not room for two people to be in charge here. And so he kicks us out of his presence. He says, you can be in charge, but not here. God takes sin seriously. So seriously, in fact, that the only way to restore that relationship is with blood. It's described this way in the book of Leviticus. For the life of the body is in the blood. I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. God says that that life is in the blood, and blood's the only thing that can atone or make up for sin. Your good stuff, your charity, your volunteering, that, that can't make you right with God. Only blood can. And so every year, every year the people would lay their hands 
on this one-year-old Passover lamb that was full of life and vigor without blemish or defect so that they could be made right with God for another year. So they could be made right with God for another year. So why might we want a new covenant? Seems like that was taking care of things, right? Going on. Ron said in Sunday school something that I'd never thought of before, but I really appreciate it. He said that the old covenant had this natural obsolescence in it. It was going to become obsolete. There was going to become a time when it would just stop working. So why might we want a new covenant? First of all, it's unpleasant. I don't want to be a part of that ceremony. I don't want to have to lay my hands on a year-old lamb and feel it die. More than that, it doesn't solve the problem. This, this sacrificial system, it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't, it doesn't atone for any sins. It just keeps God's wrath at bay. It's kicking the can down the road. It's the only thing it does. We still have to deal with sin. See, the Passover lamb never saved anyone. The Passover lamb never saved anyone. It just made it possible to wait for Jesus. This cup is a new covenant between God and his people. It's not the old one where we kick the can down the road. This is God's solution. It's not a lamb that pacifies for a year. It's God himself who endured the penalty of sin. It's God himself who allowed himself to be held down as nails pierced his skin. It is God himself as he allowed himself to be whipped and beaten. It is God himself as he allowed his blood to be poured out for us. It's not a lamb. It's the lamb of God. We don't have to sacrifice a lamb. We just have to trust that God's sacrifice was enough. See, Leviticus says there's, that the, the life of the body is in its blood, and I've given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. Here's how this might sound in New Covenant language. For the life of the body is in the blood, and I have given you holy blood on the cross to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is this holy blood given in exchange for your lives that makes purification complete. See, we eat to remember that Jesus' body suffered the cruelty of our life so that we might inherit eternal life. We drink to remember that Jesus' blood has cleansed us of our sins. We drink to remember that Jesus' blood has cleansed us of our sins. Whenever we eat this meal, whenever we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. I'll talk a little bit about this too. Two things. When we proclaim the Lord's death, we're saying the same thing we said at baptism. That we need Jesus as Lord. It's a renewal of a covenant that we've made with God. A reaffirming of our need for Jesus. We're saying, I need you today the same way I needed you then. It's also a reminder that he will return. It's a reminder that, that he was here. He's gone away, but that he will come back. So communion. Communion is a proclamation of what has happened. And it's a promise of what will happen. Jesus has come and Jesus 
will come. For that reason, communion is the absolute centerpiece of what we want to do here in worship. We love singing praises to our great God and King. He will now and forever be worthy of those songs of praise. I love preaching. I hope you enjoy learning about God's Word in our lives. Uh, Our prayer time is undoubtedly important, but it is this proclamation of the Lord's death until His return that we celebrate more than anything else in worship. It's our hope of what has happened and our hope of what will happen. And that's as simply as I can put it. It's our hope of what has happened and our hope of what will happen. But I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you are here and, and you feel like me. And it's, it's a reminder of the most glorious truth in our lives bought at the worst price imaginable. And you're conflicted. You go, how should I feel? How should I feel as I partake of this communion of this Lord's Supper? Should I be humble and sad as I remember the death Jesus died? Should I be joyful because he isn't dead? And what about me? I'm no longer controlled by sin, but I still commit sin. How should I feel about that? How do I handle that? And as complicated as this idea of communion and as much emotion as there is involved in this partaking of communion. Let me uncomplicate it for you. I'm tell you what is absolutely necessary as we partake of communion. The one thing that you absolutely must feel when we take communion, we should feel like we need Jesus. And that's it. When we take communion, we should feel like we need Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you right now and we have participated in your communion. We are grateful for the reminder of of what's been done for us. We are humbled because we know what it cost. We're humbled because we know that Jesus endured the cross, even though he despised its shame. We are joyful because he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God, we are humbled because we are sinners. But we are joyful because we are not controlled by our sin. But most of all, God, we confess to you now. We proclaim, we renew this covenant that says, I need Jesus as my Lord. And so we confess that to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. We've talked a lot about the Lord's Supper today, uh, but here's what I want you to know. Our salvation doesn't start in the Lord's Supper. It starts in baptism. In baptism, it is the time that we confess our need for Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 says this. It's, Baptism now saves you. It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but it's an appeal to God for a clear conscience through Christ Jesus. It's in baptism that we say, Lord, I need you. That's where the forgiveness of our sins takes place. The Lord's Supper is where we affirm that need for Jesus on a weekly basis in the same way that we did in baptism. So if you're here today and you are taken, you're drawn into this idea of communion, I think maybe you should be baptized if you haven't been before. 
think today's the day for you to do that. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song together. And if you need to be baptized, I think today is the day you should do it. Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run. The fountain I drink from holy is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow where I hide. The ransom for my life, holy is my song. You are good, good. Have a great day. Happy Thanksgiving.